So last week, we began a new series. We'd finished the, the book of Ephesians, our 25-week journey through the book of Ephesians. And, and we've set off now to look at John chapters 13 through 17, what many scholars call the upper room discourse. So if you're unfamiliar with what that is, basically what, what is happening here is Jesus has, has turned from his public ministry to the masses. And for this last supper, this last meal, Jesus has set his face on his disciples. And he pours into his disciples over this last meal. And there's five chapters of scripture in the book of John where we see Jesus pouring into his disciples. We see lots of crazy things happen. We see Jesus washes disciples' feet, something that would have been very uncommon for the host, the guest of honor at a, at a meal to do, to bend down and, and to wash his disciples' feet like we saw Jesus do last week. And this week, we're looking at one of the, quite frankly, the darkest hours of Jesus' life. Looking today at the story of, of Judas and the betrayal of Jesus that sent him ultimately to Calvary. And I think God has a lot for us here this morning. And so uh, I want to encourage you not to, to just think, okay, Ryan's going to tell me, don't betray Jesus or, or you know, don't be a Judas. Because God has way more for us here this morning than that. And so with that being said, let's get into the Word together. We're looking at John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he had spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's pray. Father, this was the darkest hour of your son's life. This moment where a disciple who he loved, who he gave his life away to, betrayed him, turned his back on Jesus and gave him up for 30 pieces of silver. And God, when we read this, our hearts ache because we know that you are so much better than that. Yet, Father, in your, your sovereign will, you have sought fit to be betrayed so that you could go to the cross for me and for all who would call upon your name. And so, Father, this morning, we don't take this text lightly, and we ask that you'd meet us here this morning. I, Father, I pray that you'd meet those that have been betrayed that know the pain of betrayal, but don't know the pain of betrayal that sends them to a cross. Pray that you'd meet them here. You'd be their high priest this morning. 
Father, I, I, I pray that you would, you would meet those here this morning that, uh, that have significantly betrayed someone. That, that you would meet them in their time of need and give them grace this morning. And Father, we pray in all things that you would be glorified this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What comes to mind when I say the name Benedict Arnold? Traitor, right? If you're unfamiliar with Benedict Arnold, basically here's the story. There's this, there's this boot monument at Saratoga National Park that commemorates a major general of the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War. The monument commemorates Arnold's contribution to the Continental Army's victory over the British in the Battle of Saratoga, one of the, one of the, the turning points of the Revolutionary War. So Arnold was wounded in the foot during the Battle of Quebec and suffered further, further injury in the Battle of Ridgefield when his horse was shot out from under him. And his last battle injury was at Saratoga. And it occurred near this monument where it's located. So the, the, the thing that's interesting about this boot monument, I mean, who wouldn't want a boot monument in their yard, right? I mean, a giant boot, you want that, right? The interesting thing about this boot monument is the fact that it doesn't have a name on it. So every monument that you see, I came from the city of Indianapolis before this, and it has more monuments than any other place in the United States, maybe more than even Washington, D.C. in the state, uh, if not really close to it. This monument is nameless, and it's nameless because Benedict Arnold was a traitor. So after the battle, a couple of lower-ranking men were promoted ahead of him. And he thought, hey, I should be the one that's promoted. I should be the one that, that's kind of made a big deal out of because of my efforts in this war. And so what happened to Arnold was a root of bitterness began to settle in his soul, and he just couldn't let it go. And so finally he gives into temptation of joining forces with the Brits for a large sum of money and a high-ranking position in the British Army. So this conspiracy was found out. The guy that kind of set it up was actually killed. And Arnold began to flee on foot. And he ends up living kind of a slow, painful death in London. A life of really no one knew who he was. He went from this position of honor in the army and, and betrayed the United States. And he ended up dying in another country kind of by himself. So when I say the word Benedict Arnold, the name Benedict Arnold, you think of traitor. So my question to you is this. Who would want to honor such a traitor? Who would give grace to such a traitor? And those of you that are good Bible-believing Christians know where I'm going with this. Jesus would honor such a traitor. To some degree, we have all said that which does not honor our Father. We have all acted in ways that do not line up with the gospel that we believe. We betrayed our King and our Maker by exchanging His way for our own way. We've all sold Jesus out to, to some other apparent Savior in our life to some degree. So Jesus welcomes traitors and those who sell him out because he's full of grace. And this is why he stepped into the world and became flesh, to rescue traitors, those that would betray him. Even though Judas, as we see in this scripture today, doesn't really repent. So no matter what comes to mind when you think of Judas or betrayal today, no matter what guilt sets on your conscience and no matter what anger or root of bitterness sets in your soul when you think about the word betrayer, Jesus' grace is more than sufficient for whatever that is. So I want you to think about two things today. I want two things kind of going through your mind, oscillating between these two thoughts as we look at this text. And it's these two things right here. God has sovereignly ordained his purposes to come to pass and bring redemption through betrayal. He could have chosen another way. 
But God has sovereignly chose his purposes to come to pass through betrayal for a reason. And I'm not sure what all those reasons are, but certainly it's so that he can be our great high priest. That he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be, to be hurt, to be betrayed, to have someone turn their back on him. So I want you to have that thing rolling around in your head as we're talking about this. And also that proximity to Jesus is not equivalent to redemption. Proximity to Jesus is not equivalent to redemption. So you can look like a Christian your whole life and be far from Jesus on the inside. So this should serve for us really as a, as a warning to us, but not just a warning for us to, to cause us fear, but an invitation to really know Jesus and not just look like we know Jesus. The big idea of where we're going today is this. Judas served himself by sacrificing Jesus. Jesus saved sinners by sacrificing himself. You see, this was Judas's gospel. This was good news for Judas, that, that if he could just use Jesus for his advantage, that maybe it'd be enough. Maybe it'd be enough for him to experience redemption, to be satisfied in life. If he could serve himself, if he could sacrifice Jesus, that it would be enough. But the scriptures show us that Jesus has to serve us. He has to cleanse us. He has to wash us before we'll ever find satisfaction in life. And then, and only then, are we free to go live a life of love toward those that are around us. So as we walk through this passage today, I think there are really four movements that evolve over this scenario with Jesus, Judas, Satan, and the disciples. And we're going to go outside of John a little bit too, and we're going to look at other accounts of the life of Judas because they offer context to what's going on there. So the first movement that we're looking at is this. Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. So let me ask you this. Have you ever watched a suspenseful movie with someone who's never watched that suspenseful movie before? It's a, it's a lot of fun because you know where the movie's going, and they don't. And so like, you're like on the inside, you're like, oh yeah, they're going to get freaked out right now. This is going to be great. And you, kind of on the inside, you know where the story is going. Well, Jesus is the same way that we see in this passage. We see Jesus is, is sovereign. He, he understands. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows how this is going to play out, but he also knows that his friends are going to freak out, right? He knows that they're, they're going to be tempted to doubt the control, the sovereignty of Jesus in this scenario right here. And, and Jesus even says in, in John 13 there, rather the apostle John says this, he says in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So Jesus knows everything that's going on. And yet he wants, he wants his disciples to know that he's in control. You see, Jesus wants the world to see that the scriptures will be fulfilled, that this is not surprised God, that the world would know that the prophets prophesied that this would happen. God has known that this would be his plan from the beginning of time. So he wanted them to know that the scriptures, he keeps saying that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He's really conscious of the fact that he is a part of a bigger story of redemption. And he also wants to bring comfort to his disciples. Because hypocrisy can shake our faith, can it? Hypocrisy will shake your faith. Whenever you know someone that, that you think is a certain person, and by the way that they live, act, and behave, show you that there's someone else, it will shake your faith. And it will shake our faith because more often than not, we've put our hope into someone other than Jesus. And we've said, okay, I'm going to follow this person. And we realize that they're not all they've said that they are. Our faith is shaken. 
So the disciples would have been tempted to think about the fact that Judas, I mean, Judas was probably the most educated of all the disciples. I mean, Judas was, he, he was the only one that wasn't from Galilee. Judas was a smart guy. He probably had all the right answers in the Sunday school class, you know. I mean, he, he, was, he was a smart guy, so he looked like he had it all together. But on the inside, he was falling apart. He was an unbeliever. So we've been working on this discipline and reward system with our kids. So we, we've been really trying hard to, to discipline when disobedience occurs, but also reward when reward needs to happen. And so yesterday, we're at this baseball game. So my kids are playing baseball, a three-and-a-half-year-old Caden, five-and-a-half-year-old Tatum, and it's coach pitch baseball. Now, we've been playing baseball in the backyard for a long time. They're pretty proficient at baseball, if I must say myself. Caden gets up to the plate. He has been nailing it in practice. He steps up to the plate, and Dad's out there getting ready to throw him the ball. He picks up his bat, and then all of a sudden I see the Caden look, and I'm like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. So he goes, he gives kind of the mean brow, and then just looks down and drops the bat and stands there. Everybody's looking at Coach. This is the coach's son, right? Everybody's looking at me. I'm like, come on, Caden, you got this. And he's like, just standing up there at the plate. And so I go up. I whisper something into his ear. And then all of a sudden, he's like, all right, Dad, let's go. Let's do this. Come on, man. So after the game, one of the parents was asking me, he's like, hey, so what did you, what did you whisper into his ear? I mean, that must have been magic, whatever you whispered into his ear. And I said, well, I told him I'd buy him an Octonaut toy. <laughs> if you don't know what an Octonaut is, <laughs> go talk to Caden. I'll tell you. <laughs> and the sad thing about this is that in that moment, I proved myself to be a hypocrite because I, we have this system in place of, of, of what needs to happen. And, and now I'm in this position where I've either got to break the system and kind of the agreement that Megan and I had for our children, or I've got to lie to my son and not get him an octonaut toy. So I'm in this position, and I'm a hypocrite. And I know it's kind of a light and funny way to kind of call myself a hypocrite, but nonetheless, my kids are, either my wife was like, hey, you didn't, you're not doing what you signed up for, or, or my son's like, hey, dad, you're a liar. You know, I mean, either way, I'm a hypocrite in this situation. Hypocrisy and betrayal is no surprise to Jesus. It's no surprise that the people that you hold in high esteem have betrayed you, have sold you out, and you've done the same thing to other people. It's no surprise. So there's, there's something that's just tangibly real about Jesus being in this moment and, and having, think about this, why, why, does, why, does, why does God allow this to happen? He could have chosen another way to bring about the cross. He could, he could have done something else. Why does, why does one of his own have to betray him? Why, why can't the A-team stay together? Why can't they be all together and at the cross with Jesus and just standing firm in their faith? Because this had to happen so that God's grace could be made available to all. And for us that look on, I think it's important that we see that there's grace for the betrayer because Jesus loved Judas to the end. He loved him to the end. Jesus had to have someone turn their back on him so that he could forever turn his face, his smile upon us. And give us grace in our time of need when we are tempted to doubt his goodness. It, it's interesting when you dig underneath this because Jesus quotes Psalm 41.9 in here. Psalm 41.9 is the, situ- the psalm that David wrote. And it's this, this psalm that he's writing about his son Absalom. And if you know anything about Absalom and David, Absalom is his son and he betrays David. He, he, he tries to overthrow the kingdom, to, to take David's position in the kingdom. And so David has this guy... This, this right-hand man that's kind of his d- disciple, right? I mean, he's his right-hand man. He's his counselor, his advisor. And what happens is his name is Ahithophel. Ahithophel, there we go. Ahithophel, it's not an ordinary name, right? So Ahithophel is his right-hand man. 
And what Ahithophel does is he sells David out and he goes with Absalom. So he quotes this right here. The disciples would have all known that. You know, the other interesting thing about Ahithophel is Ahithophel goes on to hang himself for his sin. He can't bear the weight of the guilt of what he's done. So what he's telling Judas right here is, Judas, I know what you're going to do, brother. I'm begging you to repent. I know you're going to take your life. But you can repent. You can turn back. His close friend will lift his heel against him and stomp Jesus into the ground. So what does Jesus want to show us? That he uses terrible things, even betrayal, to bring about his purposes for us. And we're going to be tempted to doubt his nearness and his control and his sovereignty in those moments because we don't see the whole picture. We don't see what God's doing here. We don't understand why God is doing that. And while I don't understand this all, I'm strangely reminded of the scenario in Genesis chapter 50-20 where Joseph has been betrayed by his brothers. Some of you know this story. His brothers sold him into slavery because they're jealous of him. So Joseph gets taken away to Egypt. But God is sovereign over this whole thing. Joseph quickly climbs the ladder. He's he's like the the Pharaoh's right-hand man, right? And and what happens is this famine kind of settles on the land, and the Israelites have to come back, and they have to get food from the Egyptians because the Egyptians are the only ones that have food. So the brothers have to confront the brother that they sold into slavery. And do you know what Joseph's response is? He could, man, he could have stomped these guys into the ground. He could have put them in prison. He could have had them murdered. He could have done anything he wanted to do. But do you know what his response was? He says to them, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And i got to imagine that this is probably rolling around in Jesus' mind. He's speaking this to them, even though he's not, we don't have it recorded that he's verbally spoke this, but he's, he wants them to trust him, to know that this is his plan. All things, Christian, listen to this, all things are working toward your good. That's what Romans 8, 28 and 29 says. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There are no setbacks for you as a Christian in your progression toward Christ. Because all things, that's, that's everything, are working together for your good, your holiness, God's glory. He uses everything in our lives. So think about this. This was Satan's greatest apparent victory, was the cross of Jesus, was, was the time that he got Judas to bite on this lie and to believe it. But Satan's greatest apparent victory led to his final defeat, right? Because the cross is the best news for us ever, right? So that lie that the Judas believed, that he was never a believer even though he looked like it, that sent Jesus to the cross because he betrayed Jesus, leads to our victory in Christ. And he gives us great hope because of what he's done. Second movement we see through this scripture is this, is that Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves sinners. So Jesus, even as you heard me read this, I mean, Jesus is troubled in his spirit. This isn't like Jesus is like, hey, let me make an announcement, guys. One of you is going to betray me. He's, he's a man, he's troubled in his spirit. One of his best friends has stabbed him in the back and will send him to a cross. He is troubled. In it. The word that's kind of used in this text is the same word for the shortest verse in the Bible, which is Jesus wept. Jesus is weeping over Lazarus' funeral, even though he's going to raise him from the dead. It's the same. Jesus is weeping. He's troubled in his spirit because of what's got to happen. 
And sure, he's, he's troubled because of the cross. Nobody wants to endure that. But he's troubled because of his friend and what he's going to do. He's going to betray him. Peter, Peter always provides comic relief with the disciples, right? I mean, he's always got something kind of funny to say. Peter in this moment's like, oh, I'm not going to go straight to Jesus, but I'll go through John, because John looks like he's kind of Jesus' right-hand man. So he said, hey, John, 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 can, can you ask Jesus who it is? Because evidently in this passage right now, Jesus kind of makes this declaration in verses 21 through 29. He says, truly, truly, verse 21, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And so the disciples start kind of you know, they're kind of looking at each other, wondering what's going on here. And so Peter's like, hey, I'm going to break the silence. John, figure out who it is, man. So let me explain the setup of the table so you can understand Jesus' grace, even in this betrayal. Because it wasn't this announcement, hey, the one that I'm going to give this bread to is the one that is going to betray me. It wasn't like that at all. It was, the tables would have been set up in this kind of you-like fashion in the upper room. And Jesus would have been at the head of the you, who would have been sitting front and center. On his left side, because they're, they're kind of leaning on their left arm, he would have been kind of tucked up into John's chest. So they would have been right next to one another. And John kind of gets the news and he kind of whispers to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, who is it? And then Jesus whispers back to him. None of the other disciples know what's going on. And we can see that through reading the rest of this text right here. Judas is likely at his right-hand side because we, we see that Jesus can reach bread, dip it in the cup, and then give it to Judas. We see that he's close by, he's nearby. So Judas was actually in one of the seats of honor at the table. Probably the seat of honor because Jesus was most vulnerable to Judas at that meal. If he could reach him, he was close to him. So I mean, you think about this. Jesus is laying on his left arm. Judas is behind him. They're all kind of tucked around this table. Judas could have put him in a chokehold, pulled the Hulk Hogan on him. He could have done anything to Jesus. Jesus trusted him to the end. Think about some other things about Judas' life. We see that Judas is the entourage accountant, right? Judas is holding the money back. He's the one that they trust with the money. He's a very trusted disciple. He was in charge of the money. Jesus trusted him. And the whole time, Jesus knows when he selected Judas Iscariot to follow him, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. He saw three years into the future. He knew that that was going to happen. And he still said, come and follow me, Judas. Think, what love. What love of Jesus to endure those three years Hearing Judas say things that sound all great and good, knowing that in his heart he does not believe in him. What love. Jesus loves sinners. And for us, Jesus loves sinners. The people in your life that you think are beyond repair. Jesus, Jesus loves sinners. And there's no one that's so corrupt that Jesus cannot redeem them, cannot draw them into relationship with him. You think that you've, that you've ran too far away from God. There's no such thing. Jesus loves sinners. Number three, no one is above betrayal. No one is above betrayal. So Jesus drops the bomb of betrayal. And how do the disciples respond? They did the same thing that you and I would do. They begin to get defensive. Like, hey, is it me? I don't know. Is it, is it you? I don't know. And so they're kind of looking around at each other. But they're not getting defensive in the, same, in, in the same way that we might be tempted to because when we read in Matthew, Matthew 26, 20 through 25, it gives in another account, another point of view for how this played out in the upper room. And it's really important that we read this. When it was evening, this is uh, Matthew 26, 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
And how did they respond? They were very sorrowful. Jesus is sorrowful when he says this. We said that he was troubled in his spirit. They were sorrowful, and he began to say to one another. They didn't say, hey, you know, it must be that guy. It must be that guy. Peter's curious, right? He wants to know who it is. But it says that they all asked this question first. Is it I, Lord? Is, Is it me? Is it me, Lord? They begin to ask that question to themselves. And then Jesus goes on to say, it's the one that has dipped his hand in the dish with me. And then he, he continues to go around and ask. And then Judas, he gets to Judas last. And Judas said, is, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. I think it's interesting that he calls him Rabbi instead of Lord too. So they begin to respond, Lord, is it I? They understood that no one is above a betraying heart. Friends, the effects of sin in our lives put us all in the same position where we could be as vulnerable as Judas. We could do the same thing that Judas did. We, in some measure, the disciples understood that we're all Judas. That we all have the propensity and the temptation because of our sinful nature to do the exact same thing, to betray people, to go against our word. And what a posture of humility from these disciples. I mean, could you imagine if, if we as a church would begin to ask the question, when, when something arises, some kind of conflict arises in your workplace, in your home, in this church, in a missional community, or whatever, in your neighborhood, and instead of saying, oh, it's that guy, we begin to ask the question, is it I, Lord? Is is it me? We we begin to look inside and examine ourselves before we start kind of pointing the finger at everyone else. I think the disciples in this moment, they emulate a posture of humility. Humility. So there's this kind of charge for us to be able to examine ourselves. And, and I think another thing that we see that I mentioned before is that just because we're in proximity with Jesus, we've been around all of the Christian things, we've been in church since we were born, doesn't mean that we're in relationship with Jesus. Just because it appears that we have it all together and that Jesus is our homeboy doesn't mean that we're in a loving relationship with Jesus and we're following him. So there's kind of this warning. So some of us are tempted to believe that our spiritual pedigree can save us, that, that where we've come from, kind of what we've done in our life, that that can save us. And, and on the other side of things, some of us are tempted to believe that there's no way that God could love us because of the things that we've done. And in the scriptures, we see that both of those presuppositions are false, that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more. The, the cross was the answer. On the, on the other side of things, there's, there's nothing that we can do for God to kind of turn his face away from us if he's called us. And with our mouths, if we proclaim that Jesus is Lord and we believe that God raised him from the dead, the scriptures say you'll be saved. And so that's what we see here, that there's nothing we can do to separate us from the love of God. That's what the scriptures say. And so if we call upon his name, he's near. Think about this. When Jesus was on the cross, when Jesus was in, at the upper room and he's being betrayed, this scripture kind of comes to mind. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know how another way to read that? While we were still sinning, while we were in the act of sinning, Jesus Christ died for his children. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to do this for you guys. I'm going to put up a payment up front. Now you guys know how you got to live, you got to live good lives now. That wasn't what Jesus was saying. That wasn't what Jesus was doing in the upper room. If, if your sin did not stop Jesus on the cross, why would it stop him from loving you now? It doesn't. This is, this is the truth and the beauty of God's grace. And it wasn't Judas's sin of betrayal that left him hopelessly lost. That wasn't it. But rather his unbelief in the grace of God 
that forgives sin that separated him from God. It was his unbelief that left him hopelessly lost. Number four, true repentance ends in restoration and not despair. John 13.30 is the end of this whole kind of scenario of what's going on with Judas by saying this. And it was night. Period. And it was night. He wasn't just given a weather report. You know, he wasn't saying, hey, the sun's went down or whatever. It was the night time of Judas's soul. And it was night. He had walked out on the light of the world and chosen the way of darkness. It was night in Judas's soul. He didn't believe in Jesus. And we see Judas' response in Matthew 27. Matthew writes about this. So this is really important for us to read this in Matthew 27, 3 through 5. And when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, listen to what he does. He changes his mind. Judas, Judas changes his mind, and he, and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he, and, he, and he has this apparent posture of repentance, Judas does. And he says this, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. That's exactly what Judas did. He went and he handled it himself. This was the gospel of Judas. Judas Judas was hopelessly lost because he thought that it was all up to him. And when he realized what he did, he was ashamed of the consequences of his sin. And so he went and, and did the unthinkable. He didn't even give himself a chance to, to, to kind of repent and follow Jesus. What we see with Judas is they repented from the consequence of sin, not from sin. He was just sad about the consequences. There's nothing more difficult than trying to teach your children what genuine repentance is, right? There's nothing more difficult because you, on one side you want to like hold, hold them to the standard of obedience so that you can show them that the grace of God is, is real and tangible and they need it. But on the other side of things, you don't want to teach them to be a bunch of actors, right? We're not, we're not training them up for Broadway here. So it's, it's one of those things where temptation is to just kind of make it look like your kids kind of have it all together. There's nothing more difficult than teaching genuine repentance. Judas repented from the consequences of sin. When he saw Jesus walking the lonely road that would lead to the cross, he felt sorrow. Because he realized that that 30 pieces of silver, that is the same price that a slave would cost, is what sold Jesus to, to go bear the cross. To be done, so that the Romans could be done with Jesus. The high priest could be done with Jesus. We see that he repented from the consequences of his sin, not his sin. And repentance, as we see from David, when David makes one of the biggest mistakes of his life, when he, when he has this affair with Bathsheba, and David says something very valuable that teaches us what true repentance is. And he says this right here, Psalm 51.4. Against you... And you only have I sinned, God. So in our repentance, we're tempted to first look horizontally at who we've offended, at who we've affected, at the consequences of our sin, the trouble that it's gotten us into. David says, no, no, no. I, I don't want to look first at that. I, I killed a man. I killed Uriah because I wanted his wife. I'm not looking at that first, but I'm looking at the fact that I've offended my heavenly father. I've offended God. And so first I look to him and I say, God, against you and you only have I sinned. And then that love that we receive from the Father, that forgiveness that we receive from the Father empowers us to be reconciled. It gives us this ministry of reconciliation to those that are around us. So where does the guilt of sin go for Judas? 
what goes to himself. That's the gospel of Judas, is that he can handle it on his own. He turns to himself in the darkest hour of his life only to find out that he's got nothing. And so that's why he takes his life. So my question to you is the same question. Where do you turn? Where do you turn in those difficult moments when you realize that the depth of your sin is far greater than what you can pay for? What do you turn to? Do you turn to substance abuse? Do you turn to some kind of addiction? What do you turn to? Do you turn to to someone else or do you turn to Jesus? Because in the scriptures we see that the only good in us is found in Jesus. And so when we turn to Jesus, all the goodness that comes from us when we turn to Jesus, comes it, it's from Jesus. It's not anything in us. And so I think we would do well to, to have that posture like the disciples had in Matthew 26, 27, where, where they say, is it I, Lord? There's this, there's this quote about Judas that I'll close with here. It says this, Still as of old, man by himself is priced. For 30 pieces... Judas sold himself, not Christ. Judas sold his own life to the enemy when he sold Jesus out, when he betrayed Jesus. I just wish he could have saw the affection of a heavenly father that would send his son in turn. And we have that opportunity today. Let's pray together and and, and just beg for God's grace to come more fully into our lives. Father, we thank you for grace God, even, even though we, we kind of see the bigger picture of what went on with Judas in the upper room, um, God, we, we know that we, we struggle with the same sin, that we, we try to take sin on our own shoulders, we try to suppress it, we try to hide it, we try to deal with it on our own. But Father, the only sufficient device, the only sufficient person for our sin, to pay for our sin is the person of Jesus and the cross that he bore for us. So, Father, would you, would you humble our hearts just like you humbled those disciples and they said, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Am I the one that is going to betray him? Would you do the same with us, with our sin, that we wouldn't be tempted to try to deal with it on our own, but that we would trust in the work of Jesus on our behalf and we would see him more beautiful than we ever have in our lives. Father, we know that you, you care for your children. And I I pray that you would make that a reality this morning in our lives. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.